Amen. Well, let me begin by thanking our brother Mike for continuing to lead us so well in our time of worship and singing this morning. Uh, we have already sung many of the precious truths we're about to see here this morning from God's Word. And I also want to thank our sister Carol as she was able to lead us and, and, and help us in the musical accompaniment as we sang the praises of God this morning. I also want to encourage you, hope everybody here has a, a copy of the, excuse me, of the Revelation Notebook, and uh, that way you can follow along uh, here this morning. And uh, as we began last week in the book of Revelation in the sermon series, I encourage you to turn in the book of Revelation or here in the Revelation Notebook to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1, we'll be considering this morning verses 4 to 8. And uh, while you're turning there, if you were to consider the strength and power of our nation in the world today, how powerful, how strong would you say we are? If you go back to the end of World War II, there were three superpowers that began to be announced, and America was named as one of the three world superpowers together with the United Kingdom and with the Soviet Union. But with the decline of the British Empire through the 20th century and the dissolution of the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War, America is now recognized as the only world superpower today, with China possibly rising as the next world superpower. But because of America's power and influence in the world, we find the world then paying attention to what happens in our nation. That's why this presidential election gets so much international attention. After all, the president is usually seen as the most powerful man in the world. Well, as we consider Revelation and the days in which Revelation was given, we find that Christians were also living under a superpower. But that superpower was known as the Roman Empire. Yet unlike our nation, there was no freedom of religion in the Roman Empire, and Christians were often opposed and threatened and would struggle and suffer. So it's into these hardships that these words of encouragement from Revelation come. So with this in mind, let us read together from Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. We read, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood 
and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Brothers and sisters, let us again go before our Lord in prayer. Father, oh, how in the midst of all the uncertainty in our world, with all of the challenges, with all of the corruption, with all of the struggles and sufferings we experience. Father, we need to be encouraged through your word this morning. May you then provide for us this encouragement as your word is preached. That you will give us this hope to live in a world that is so difficult and spiritually dark. May the light of Christ then shine brightly in our lives this morning. And so, Father, we pray you will bless us as your word is preached, that you will empower these words through your Holy Spirit to take hold in our minds and renew our minds that our lives and bodies will be transformed and that our hearts will be inflamed and rejoice in the greatness of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, please be with me as I preach your word, that it will be a blessing to your people and a glorious occasion for salvation among the sinners who hear of your gospel this morning. And we ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as we reflect upon these verses, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice because what we find here in these verses is that Christ is our sovereign king in a sinful world. Isn't that wonderful? That we have Christ as our sovereign king in this sinful world. And there are two truths about our sovereign king here from these verses this morning. First, that Christ is our reigning king. Christ reigns. Second, that Christ is our returning king, that Christ will return. Let's begin then verses four to six to see that Christ is our reigning king. Of course, as we began our study 
Last week, we found in the introduction to Revelation that this is an apocalyptic book of prophecy. But now, as we come to verse 4, we also see that this is a letter, which then brings together this is an apocalyptic book of prophecy, which is a letter, or uh, to think of Revelation, this is a letter of apocalyptic prophecy. All three of these kinds of writing are joined and united together in the book of Revelation. And like other New Testament letters, this one starts with the author, the audience, and an opening greeting. So we begin in verse 4 with the author, John. And while some have suggested this is not the Apostle John, but another John, a careful study of Scripture and recognition by church tradition over the centuries confirm that the Apostle John is the author. It is he who has recorded for us these visions from God. But who is he writing to? We go on to see it's to the seven churches Jar in Asia. Now, this is not the modern continent of Asia with China or India, but this would be the ancient region known as Asia Minor, which would be in today's nation of Turkey. But let us stop for a moment and consider the struggles that the first century churches in Asia Minor would have experienced. These Christians were a small and often disregarded and even despised group of the Roman Empire. Christians were misunderstood and maligned in their day. And the Jewish people as well often sought to exclude them and even stop them which left these Christians then in these churches often facing persecution and suffering, which led them to be tempted to leave the faith, to compromise their faith so that their lives would become easier in this world. And it's to these Christians in these churches that John gives these words of encouragement. But here we find there are seven churches that receive this letter. So it's a letter that would go from one church to another, to seven of them there in Asia Minor. But since Revelation makes known through symbols God's message for His people, remember these numbers are not random. They are representative. Seven is a number that represents fullness or completeness or perfection, which is why it's the central number through the entire book of Revelation. You may remember, after all, how significant the number seven is throughout the Old Testament, including the very beginning of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. What do we have at the beginning of the Bible? but the seven days of creation. Here we have seven churches 
which are seven churches spread throughout Asia Minor in the first century, but which also symbolize all of Christ's churches through history, including our own church today. We are then included among these seven churches. And as John then greets these churches, he gives an opening prayer for them that they will receive God's grace and peace. And so he asks for God's favor to be richly poured out on us so we will be reconciled with God and one another again. That's we go on to read in verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. But don't miss where this grace and peace comes from. And continue reading in verse 4 there. Not only is this grace and peace from him who is, or who was, who is and who was and who is to come, but also from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. You see, our triune God is the one through whom grace and peace comes from. There are three froms in verses 4 to 5. So this blessing of grace and peace comes from our triune God. First, it comes through our God, and the Father, as the one who is and who was and who is to come. This then is a reflection on God's Old Testament covenantal name, Yahweh, as is revealed in the book of Exodus when God said, I am who I am. Because he is eternal and he is the sovereign Lord over time who then acts in history. But did you notice the order that's given? He does not say grace to you and peace from him who was and who is and who is to come. He didn't go past, present and future. But what does he begin with? The present. The present, because he is present with us in this world. He's in control of the past, of the future, and the present, even though it may not seem like it in the days and time in which we are living. But God the Father is the one who is and who was and who is to come. But then second, not only... Does this grace and peace come from God the Father, but it comes from God the Holy Spirit. And we see this as we continue reading in verse 4, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now again, we have that symbolic number seven, don't we? And while some believe that this refers to seven angels, these seven spirits here show the Holy Spirit's perfect work as God himself. Uh, we see this by going back to the Old Testament, which we do so often here in understanding the book of Revelation. But you can write in your notes, if you'd like, the Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah 4. Because it's here that we find a prophetic speaking of a golden lampstand with seven lamps. And when the angel is then asked what these are, we read in Zechariah 4, verse 6, So he answered and said to me, 
This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then we go on to read in verse 10, For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Do you see then what the seven represents there in Zechariah? Seven are the eyes of the Lord that go out through the earth, which is... God's Spirit, His Holy Spirit. Yet we see here in Revelation how the Holy Spirit relates to God the Father because we read at the end of verse 4 that the seven spirits are before His throne, that the Holy Spirit is before the Father's throne to carry out God's will. This is why then we confess together through the historic Nicene Creed. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. So this blessing of grace and peace come from God the Father and from God the Holy Spirit. But third, we see in verse 5 that they also come from God the Son. Because they read that they come and from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the second person of the divine Trinity, who here is described in three ways. First, we see that he is the faithful witness, which means that he remained faithful to God and to God's will, even as he persevered in his ministry in this world. But not only did John prove himself as the faithful witness, or Jesus prove himself, excuse me, as the faithful witness, we also find that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Because Christ suffered the curse of sin when he died on the cross under the wrath of God. But even here, brothers and sisters, the cross was not the end. He was raised with resurrection life in a glorified body. He overcame death itself and He's the firstborn of many, which is why he's called here the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn because many more will follow who will also be brought from suffering to glory. So Christ is the faithful witness. Christ is the firstborn from the dead. But third, we see at the as verse five continues that Christ is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Because after Christ had conquered death, he then ascended to heaven, where he now rules over the nations and all that takes place in this world. Here again, John alludes back to the Old Testament, Psalm 89, verse 27, where we read, 
God saying, also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So again, think back to the time in which this was given to these churches. While the Roman emperors claimed to be sovereign and sought to be seen as divine, these Christians are shown who is truly sovereign and who reigns over the kings of the earth. What comfort and confidence then that this brings into our lives? That Christ is in control, even in the ongoing craziness of 2020. Even through the significant uncertainty of an election year and what may come. Even with the growing danger of losing our religious freedoms in our nation. Listen, Christ is reigning from heaven. Christ is reigning from heaven now, today, over this world and in our lives. How then do we respond to this glorious truth? In worship. In worship. Which is why we go on to see in verse 5 a shift to rejoicing in Christ for not only who He is, but in what He's done for us. You see, when we take our eyes off of this world and we look to Christ, we rejoice. We rejoice to Him who loved us. Isn't that beautiful? That Christ loved us and He continues loving us through sacrificing Himself in our place through His death on the cross so that we no longer are under the judgment of God but that we indeed are reconciled with God. As Christ is our substitute, He died so that we would live. He took the punishment we deserved on the cross so that we would be forgiven of our sins and saved from God's wrath. Which is why then we go on to read that in verse 5, He washed us from our sins in His own blood. The permanent stain of sin has been washed clean by the blood of Christ. Do you feel dirty under the weight of your sin? Here's a promise for you. Christ will wash you clean. We have been set free from our slavery to sin by the blood of Christ. But if that's not all, and it is, that Christ loved us and that Christ washed us from our sins in His own blood, look at our status in Christ. This is astounding that we are 
kings and priests to his God and Father. We are not mere servants alone, but as kings and priests. Because in Christ we participate in his royal and priestly office. We then are kings in Christ, which means we rule with Christ in His kingdom as royalty in this world, even when we are weak and without the worldly positions of power. Not only are we living as kings in Christ, we're also living as priests in Christ. Which means that we have direct access to the very presence of God. We can then offer our sacrifice of worship acceptable to God and through which we then bear witness to God's grace in this world. See, this is the great promise that God made to His people in Exodus 19, verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And now we are kings and priests as the true Israel of God. This is who we are in Christ. What a contrast from being despised. From being oppressed. From being those who struggle and suffer to being kings and priests in the heavens. Doesn't that fill you with comfort and confidence in this world? And remember, we see here who made us kings and priests to God. It's not ourselves. It's not through anything we have done, but it is Christ who's made us kings and priests. Thank God it doesn't depend on us. But in the midst of our hardships and troubles, brothers and sisters, we must look to our heavenly status before God himself. Which is why all that Christ has done for us simply leaves us in awe of him. He is the one with all glory and dominion forever. That's why we simply say amen. May it be so, Lord. See, John can't help but worship Christ as he writes these words. What a Savior we have in Jesus. But not only is Christ our reigning King, Christ is also our returning king. That's what we go on to see in verses 7 and 8, that Christ is our returning king. And so at the beginning of verse 7, we're told to behold. Don't skip over that word or, 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 or miss that word. We're to behold. In other words, pay attention, ob observe. Don't miss this. And what are we to behold? That he is coming with clouds. 
Christ is coming with clouds. Which shows how God's promises throughout Old Testament prophecies will be fulfilled by Christ. So there's three passages of Scripture I want us to look to this morning. Again, you can write them down in your notes. But two from the Old Testament and then one from Jesus himself. Let's begin then by looking at Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Because here, after God's judgment against the kingdoms of the world are pronounced, we read in Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14, these words. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Does that sound familiar? He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, the Son of Man, Christ, is coming. The clouds of heaven. That's what we go on to see in verse in, in Revelation. But now let's turn to another Old Testament prophecy. In Zechariah chapter 12, because here we find God's chosen people victorious over the nations and of a coming day of mourning. So Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, we read these words. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Does that sound familiar? Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Again, does that sound familiar? You see how John has filled even these opening verses of Revelation with allusions to Scripture, and especially the Old Testament. But not only do we have these truths expressed in Daniel and in Zechariah, but these prophecies are then brought together by Jesus himself. So we turn to Matthew chapter 24. And read verses 29 to 31, where Jesus speaks of his return. Jesus is here ministering on earth, training, teaching, equipping his followers, his disciples. And he speaks of his return, Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. And see how Jesus brings together what we have seen from Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12. Read, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn 
And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This is the coming of Christ that John then reassures us of. As he writes to the churches, the revelation of Christ. Not only is Christ reigning, but he is returning. And when Christ returns, every eye will see him. Which means <laughs> this will not be a secret rapture where Christ's churches and Christians will simply disappear while the rest of humanity remains on earth and wonders what has happened. What we see in Revelation is that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Now, when Revelation was recorded, those who pierced Christ while he hung on the cross were still alive. But here they represent all those who have rejected Christ, which are all sinners living in rebellion against God. And what happens when they see Christ return? Again, look at verse 7. Behold, he's coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. They will mourn because of him. Picture them crying out and wailing when they see Christ coming. Now, we don't know how every eye will see him. We do know they will. There is debate, though, over what kind of mourning this is. There are some who say this could be a mourning of repentance, while others see this as a mourning of remorse. But given the context here of Christ's return, it seems to me that the time for repentance here has come to an end, and that now their judgment has come, and so they are mourning that they will be judged for their rejection of Christ. See, there is a day that will come where whatever happiness you've experienced in this world, whatever enjoyment you may have had in this life will come to an end. When Christ comes as your judge, you'll be punished for your sin. You see, God's judge, judgment and justice is coming to our world which then brings comfort to all of us who have loved, been loved by Christ and who know him as our Savior, but he also brings condemnation to all those who remain in their sin. Which is why we join at the end of verse 7 in declaring, Even so, Amen. Because we testify to the truthfulness of Christ's return and of his coming as the sovereign judge. Since it is true, may it be so. Well, these verses end with a great declaration from God himself. 
We read in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, of course, for those of you who are familiar with the Greek alphabet, you know that Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the final letter of the Greek alphabet. What God is declaring here is that he is the A and the Z. And, and this is a merism where two opposites are brought together to include everything in between. He's saying, I'm the A, the Z, and all the letters in between. I am the beginning, the end, and all that comes in between. I am the first, the last, and everything that happens. I am the creator. I am the ender. <laughs> and I am the one who is sovereign over everything in between. Together, Alpha and Omega then com comprehensively display God's control over everything in this world. Which is why we immediately have another merism that he says, the beginning and the end. As God is the one who creates, and he is the one through whom all things will culminate. And he is the one who is working all things out to bring his creation to its climax when Christ returns. So here he repeats the language that John used earlier. He now says he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. He unites all of human history together under his sovereign control. So again, we look out at a world which seems to have spun so far out of control. And here we are shown to look to the heavens, to the one who is in control and working all these things out according to his perfect wisdom and divine purposes. He is the one who is reigning and who will return, which is why we end in verse 8 by seeing him declared as the Almighty. That God is the one who has the authority over all his creation, and God is the one who has control over all things through his absolute power. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing that will happen in this world. Nothing! that happens in this world outside of God's control. Which is then how we find comfort and confidence as we live in this world. This then brings us back to really the theme then of these verses, the great encouragement that we have received this morning Listen, in the midst of your struggles, where is your hope found? Christ is our sovereign king in the sinful world. Praise God, Christ is our sovereign king in this sinful world. So do you 
reject your king? Or do you rejoice in your king? Listen, either way, he is your king. Because he is the king who is reigning in heaven who will return from heaven. And all of those who continue in sinful rebellion against God remain outside of his kingdom. And when Christ returns, you will mourn over the judgment of God that you deserve for your sinfulness. You'll mourn over the judgment of condemnation that is against you as you are punished under the eternal judgment of God and His wrath and the terrors of hell. May this not be true of anyone who is here this morning. And may this not be true of anyone who is listening to this message. Because God has so loved us that He has given us His Son. So that Christ will no longer be our judge who condemns us. But our Savior. who redeems and reconciles us with God. So that God is our Father. And we are those who recognize Christ as King and who look forward to the fullness of Christ's kingdom when He returns. If this is you this morning, then, Come to Christ. Don't wait any longer, but come to Christ by repenting of your sins and receiving Christ as your Savior. Listen, the days that God gives us now before Christ's return are given for your repentance. May then turn away from your sins. And turn to Christ by trusting Him in faith and finding in Christ the greatness of God's love for sinners. And when Christ is our King, and we are members of his heavenly kingdom. Listen, whatever happens in this world, nothing changes our status before God. Nothing changes our relationship with God. Nothing changes our future before God. But we can rest in recognizing Christ is our sovereign king in a sinful world.
He is our sovereign King through the sinful world. And listen, even as Christians, how often we need to be reminded of this. Because if you're like me, you take your eyes off of Jesus and you worry and you fear. You wonder what's going to happen. You're concerned for your own life. When God frees us in Christ to have security and confidence in this world. Oh, how we need to be reminded that Christ is our sovereign king in the sinful world. I have to say that is especially true for many who are so concerned in the time in which we live of what's about to happen in our nation in the midst of a presidential election that has divided us so much. So I want uh, to mention uh, an article that I read recently by David Platt, and I know that's two weeks in a row I've mentioned David Platt, but I couldn't help but reflect upon what he recently wrote in his article, Before Voting, Ask Yourself, Who Has My Heart? Because I think he really hits the nail on the head here in addressing what we see here through the book of Revelation. Because Platt wants to remind us of this heavenly perspective. He writes, I think about Fatima and Yassin, friends of mine who live under a totalitarian Muslim regime that, that has outlawed conversion to Christianity. When Fatima placed her faith in Jesus, she knew she was risking her life and the loss of her family. Yassin is a pastor of a secret church in a community not far from Fatima, and his house has been both raided and bombed. Yassin and his family live under constant threat of governmental persecution. Needless to say, Fatima and Yassin have never considered putting their hope in their government. Similarly, their peace, joy, and confidence do not hinge on political leaders, platforms, or policies. Could we learn something from them? He goes on to write, Now some might say, but Fatim and Yassin would benefit greatly from the freedoms and protections we have as followers of Jesus in the United States. And I would agree. Still others might say, we're in danger of losing some of these freedoms and protections in the United States. That also may be true, but these comments miss the point. Now listen, this is what I want us to hear. Even if we lose every freedom and protection we have as followers of Jesus in the United States, and even if our government were to become a completely totalitarian regime, we could still live an abundant life as long as we didn't look to political leaders, platforms, or policies for our ultimate security and satisfaction. We can still have hope, peace, joy, and confidence regardless of what happens in our government. As long as, like Fatima and Yassin, we look to Jesus alone for these things. And all our hope hinges on him. 
So where is your hope this morning? Where is your hope? May your hope be in Christ, our sovereign King, in this sinful world. Look, America may be a world superpower, and our president may be the most powerful man in the world. But we have a far more powerful king who is reigning over all the nations of this world, including all superpowers. And our king is returning to usher in justice and joy. May his reign and his return then give us comfort and confidence as we live in this sin-filled world, whatever may come in the days and months and years ahead until Christ comes. May this be our hope, brothers and sisters. Christ is our sovereign king in the sinful world. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious truth to behold this morning. How much we need to be reminded of Christ as our sovereign king in this sinful world, just as the first century churches did in Asia Minor. Christians remain under threat in this world that, that is opposed to you, Father. May we not live as if we are at peace in this world. May we not live as if we should seek our pleasures from this world. But may we live in the comfort and confidence of our salvation in Christ and our status as kings and priests in Him. And may this then lead us ourselves to be faithful witnesses as Christ our firstborn went before us as the firstfruits and was a faithful witness who was raised from the dead and is now reigning until he returns. Oh, Father, may we look to Christ and remain in awe of him until our coming eternity of joy in your presence. We ask all these things then in the name of our sovereign King, Jesus Christ. Amen.